This is No Training Wheels, and I'm your host, Rob Keller. Getting to the top in professional sports is almost never a straight line. The path is filled with twists and turns and definitely features a fair number of pitfalls and a ton of rocky sections. And sometimes the path to success includes getting entirely off it and finding another one in the most unlikely place. We meet our guest today, Lily Williams, somewhere along her path. Already a world champ and a pro on the road, she's still looking for more, including Olympic gold. We tell the story of the Golden Girl in three chapters. The first is delay. The scene opens on the austere interior of the U.S. Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs. Lily was there for what was supposed to be the beginnings of the Olympic selection process. We let her pick it up from there. How is it in Colorado? It's fine. Being in the OTC is kind of isolated. It's like all of our meals are prepared. Toilet paper abounds. It's not real. I mean, there's maybe 10 or 12 athletes left. So it's pretty low key. So yeah, as residents, we're allowed to be here. Obviously, we were supposed to live here through July. So that still stands as is. Um, There's not much impetus to go anywhere else with things the way they are. So why don't you start by introducing yourself? Who are you and what do you do? My name is Lily Williams. Uh, I'm a cyclist on the road for rally cycling. For 2018 and 2019, I was a member of Hoggins Berman Supermint. 2018 was my first year as a pro, and I am currently now on the Team Pursuit squad for the U.S. national team, Um, and we most recently won the World Championships in Berlin in February, Um, and I was part of that group. So, um, yeah, would have been here uh, preparing for Olympic selection at the end of April um, and doing some road stuff with rally. But now we're just here kind of resetting and um, doing base miles and, and taking advantage of the fact that we can still get out. So You are legit. You are the world champ. There is no getting around it. Yeah. Yeah. It's insane. I keep thinking I'm going to wake up and have to do three more pursuit rides <laughs> in Berlin. Um so yeah, it is um it is pretty insane to me. I mean, for someone like Chloe who's won ten, it it may feel like more of the norm. Um, or even Jen who's won four. But um yeah, it's been a really quick progression, which is the the wildest part, I think. I started racing track. I think I went from cross nats in Louisville directly to like my first track tryout in the end very end of twenty eighteen. And I've just been kinda like more and more invested in it since then. So it's weird to have been able to race at Worlds and do so well. So we need to have both the good and the bad here. So obviously the bad is that the Olympics have been postponed. You were getting ready to be a part of the qualification process for the U.S. team. We were going to do it in July was when the Olympics were going to be in Tokyo. Now, as of today, they've been reannounced for July of 2021. Is that still the goal for you, is to be on that team? Yeah, 100%. Um, I think, if anything, I'm not going to say it's more the goal, but I think this doubles the amount of time I have to prepare (laughs) for this event. If you look at the time that I started, I am pretty excited to be able to um, have a little bit more time. I think I'm lucky in that respect compared to some athletes who may be wanting to be done and have the Olympics as the end of their career, or maybe they're getting too old to compete, um, which is just the sad reality of our sport. One of the funny 
comments that I've heard about the coronavirus, and if, to the extent that we can actually have funny comments, is what are the pros doing now? Who's going to come out of this with the most incredible level of fitness that he or she has ever had? And who's going to come out of this like Jens Voigt, you know, the day after the Tour de France is over and he goes and hits the donut shop? <laughs> uh, that's a that's a great question. I think everyone on our team is is young and is still like pretty in the midst of their career, I think. So I don't know if it will really change much for us. Man, I know, I mean, I can't really say anything about other teams either because my <laughs> experience is so low. But you have a team like us who is all young and who have not ridden together very much. And then you have other teams with athletes who have been together for one or even two Olympic cycles. You know, I think it's not going to be easy. It's going to be hard no matter what. But I think we have a lot of room to improve. So you are in Colorado Springs, obviously, for those who can't see the video because this is a podcast. The, the, <laughs> it's probably for the best given what I look like right now. Hey, today is the first day in like three days that I put like legitimate jeans on. It's been sweatpants. Yeah, it's been a lot of sweatpants. A lot of just socks. <laughs> I can't remember who it was, but somebody recently described jeans and trousers as hard pants over sweatpants. That's fair. Sweatpants are just pants. But Anything else are hard pants. So living in Colorado Springs now, are the rest of the women there with you? Not everyone is here. Those of us who were here were here kind of for a selection camp. Um, like I said before, here through April leading into the selection date. A few people have gone home, obviously, because there's less of a reason to be here. Um, a few of us have stayed because we're enjoying um, each other's company and because ultimately we don't have commitments or obligations at home, really. So they're, you know, being here is not much different than being at home, with the exception that we get to spend time with each other. There's definitely been some, like, anger on social media that we're here training together, um, which I have addressed and I am happy to address again. We live together. We literally live on the same hall. We share the same bathroom. We eat our meals together. Although, like every restaurant, we now take the food out. So, um, based on these crazy concepts like science, we are allowed to ride together. You know, is your Netflix queue really short now, just like all of ours? No, I don't really watch much TV, honestly. I've been, I work, so I've been doing my job, which has been awesome. I love my job. It's a great way to pass the time. Honestly, my life doesn't change very much. Which I, which makes this whole process a lot easier for me, I think. Um, I've worked from home or from on the road remotely for three years, same job. So I have a great routine um, and I know how to intersperse it with my training. We're just, like I said, kind of doing base miles now. So just going out to train and then coming back and working and hanging out in bed and at the desk doing stuff on the computer. And I mean, normally when I'm home and training, it's that's exactly what happens. I just I'm not going out to eat here like I normally do <laughs> eight times a week at home. So I do a lot of crosswords. That actually takes up like the majority of my free time. And you Instagram the crosswords. I do. Yeah, I'm sure people are like, who cares? But it's yeah, you have three cups of coffee and you're like, someone wants to see this. Where do you work? What is your nine to five? I work for a 501c3 nonprofit called Bike Index. Um, I started working with them pretty much immediately after I graduated from my master's program. Um, and I am the communications director, so I do a lot of, obviously, like just day-to-day -day communications among users of the site, um, but also 
coordination of software ideas between potential partners and our developer. Obviously write blogs, all of that good stuff. Don't bury the lead here, but the work that you do with Bike Index, the corporate function is like one of the things that we've been missing for so long. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So Bike Index started in 2013, it merged with a site based in the Pacific Northwest called Stolen Bike Registry. And at this point, Bike Index has recovered $10 million worth of stolen bicycles, well over a quarter of a million bikes registered and growing every day in partnerships with all sorts of organizations like bike shops so that when you buy a bike, it's registered. It's free for everyone to use. What's the website? It is bikeindex.org. Register your bike for free. It takes literally 20 seconds. Before we go any deeper into the bike riding world, or at least your bike riding world, we need to finish up here with the velodrome because this is something that's unique to a very small subset of our community. And that's a regret. And I wish it was a larger part or segment of our universe, but by virtue of there only being so many velodromes in the United States, it's hard. How did you go from cross to the track? Track cycling, I think, has ebbed and flowed in the U.S. for a long time. In the 1800s, it was like the most popular sport in the country. Velodromes everywhere. Like Madison Square Garden, I think, may have been a velodrome. Maybe fact check me on that. It, it Well, in fact, the Madison is named after. After Madison yes. Square Garden. You're right. You're right. I remember that now. So, you know, it's definitely a bummer that track isn't more popular here. I did do a couple of races one summer at the Northbrook Velodrome in Chicago, like when I was just starting cycling, just because it was fun and it was like a fun Chicago thing to do, just like cross was actually. But I didn't really, like I'd always wanted to try it, but I didn't really know how. Um, and I wasn't planning on relocating to LA or somewhere just to try it out. Um, and that's kind of what you need to do because you how do you do it without the facility? You just can't. Yeah, I started started in cross, um, went pro on the road in 2018, and I think my style of racing on the road is what caused the track program at USA Cycling to reach out. Often in the break or winning from a small group, I do well on like short, punchy climbs. I'm not a pure sprinter, but I sprint well. So that's kind of what the, all those characteristics kind of are indicative that one may be good at the team pursuit. They reached out to me in 2018 to ask me to come to the track to do some testing, basically. So I did a series of tests uh, on the Watt bike to measure power, and then I got on a track bike and did some stuff on the track, which I think was not the prettiest, <laughs> but um, it wasn't horrible. Um, and given my numbers, they thought that I could progress quickly enough to get some racing in and see where I was at. So uh, that is kind of how I made that transition at the end of 2018. Um, and so 2019, I re-signed with Supermint. And then throughout the course of the spring and summer, I would come to the track periodically for track camps and got to do my first race on the track, the Team Pursuit, which is the only event I've done so far in Lima at the Pan Am Championships. Yeah, it was pretty quick. <laughs> so the only thing in track that you do is the Pursuit. Is the team pursuit. Correct. As of now. I would love to do more, but I wouldn't have done more anytime soon given the run into the Olympics. There's just not enough time. Like, there wouldn't be races to do, and, like, our spots are already well spoken for in the mass start events. But moving forward, I would love to do some of the other events, too. So for those of us who don't really know what track is like, I've done... I went to Northbrook once, in Chicago, and it got, it's a great place, but it got rained out. Yeah, that's the out, 
side velodrome thing problem. And then I've been to Trexler Town a pair of times, but it's for me, unfortunately, it's almost shorter to commute via airplane to LA to the track at Carson from DC than it is for me to get to any other track yeah. in the United States, which is a bummer because like, I'm there with you. Uh, you know, that style of riding is the style that suits me. I've always been attracted to time trials. And so there's a whole category of individual time trials and pursuits. But for the uninitiated, for a crit racer, basically, yeah. why, why should a crit racer come and try the track? The very first time I went to Northbrook, <laughs> the way I understood the track and would describe the track to other people as the most fun parts of road racing, but in like a quarter of the time. <laughs> so you don't have to do a four-hour road race to sprint. You can do 10 sprints in the course of a 100-lap race or however they do it. Yeah, it is a total blast. It's It looks pretty intimidating from the outside, but I think when you're in the race, at least this is my interpretation of it since I haven't done any of them, is there's a flow. And from what I gather from my teammates who do it, like the racing makes sense. The movement of the riders makes sense. There's no, there's minimized erratic decision-making because all of that comes back to get you so much harder when you're on a fixed gear bike. So it's very calculated. It's crazy and fun and wild. And I mean, you're inside, so you're in a stadium and it's super spectator friendly. All of that really adds to a pretty fun atmosphere. Um, And then all I've done race-wise is World Cups. Um, There's also six-day races. The UCI is completely restructuring track um, next year. I don't know what that looks like with the Olympic postponement now, but their choice there is to make it even more spectator-friendly. Whether or not that will work is, is to be determined. But I think it is a blast. And then, of course, the bike itself. I know people say this a lot, but I think it's actually true. Bike maintenance is negligible. You just ride the bike and you don't have to worry about gears or any of that. So there's a lot of fun things about it. Like I like crit racing just great too. I won't say track is better than crit racing, but some people would say that. <laughs> well, you add brakes in and the entire equation just goes completely out. There. Yeah, I mean, I think that I think not having brakes is it just makes it safer. Th- though that seems counterintuitive. You don't have any bozo hitting their front lever, so Before we start in on Chapter 2, we need to talk about the Wide Angle Podium network of shows and its supporter, Works. I'm super thrilled that the show is now part of the network and sits alongside some of the best cycling content in the podcasting universe, like Cyclocross Radio, Bike Shop CX, The Consummate Athlete, and so many others. If you don't know about the network, go to WideAnglePodium.com to find out more. This show is brought to you this week by Works and its full range of incredible products like the HydroShot, a battery-powered power washer that is precisely set to provide enough pressure to thoroughly clean your bike without blowing the grease out of all your bearings. It comes with a ton of adapters, including two which I think are just spot-on perfect. One that allows you to drop it into a bucket and another that attaches to a 2-liter bottle. It is perfect for those of us who live in urban settings and don't have easy access to outside spigots. Go to yourcleanbike.com and use the promo code GEARUP for 15% off your order. That is yourcleanbike.com and GEARUP, all one word, 
for 15% off. We've arrived at Chapter 2 of our episode, Burnout. There is absolutely no shame in quitting. Go out there, take a shot, try to leave your mark, and if it doesn't work and you're just not into it, then stop. And no shame should befall you. Unfortunately, it gets drilled into our heads that quitting equals failure. And because of that, and out of a fear of the possibility, some of us never even try something new, or push beyond the point where we loathe that which we once loved. For Lily, that was running. One of the things that I think most of the people who follow you have learned is that you came to bike racing relatively recently. And you came from this other sport that is track. And there's been, I don't know if it's a discussion, there's at least one or two uh, TED Talks out there about the value of quitting. That there is a point where we all just go about our activities and we somehow just like feel like we need to push through our activities in order to succeed in life. And sometimes when you do something, when you give it a shot, you excel, you fail, you succeed, whatever it happens to be, but you figure out you don't like it anymore. It's okay to say, you know what? I'm done. And, and for you, at least the way that I've read your interviews and I've read the discussions you've had with other people, you got to that point with track. Yeah, I quit so hard. (laughs) I was so happy to be done. I stuck with it. I was on scholarship and I loved, there were so many things I loved about the school that I went to. Um, And my parents being the good parents that they were, were like, we are not paying for you to go to this school if you're not on scholarship. And so I stuck it out and I don't regret it. I think it totally shaped my life as a person. But by the time, you know, sticking with something that you didn't enjoy. And I think everyone should, you know, do that before they just quit something. But by the time I was done, I was like, I can't, I cannot do this anymore. What was it about the experience or more pointly, more pointedly, When did you realize that you were done with it? Well, like any person in college, I made a number of horrible decisions (laughs) that were both hurtful to me, my family, everyone around me, all that good stuff. I actually broke my foot going into my freshman year. So in high school, I was just like super type A, super intense, like did every run as hard as I could. And it worked for a while, but then I broke my foot because I was completely beating my body to shit. And then I had about a year where I was cross-training really heavily, like just way more training than anyone in my position needed to be doing. And then I came back and was like in perfect shape for the tr- my freshman track season and did pretty well. But I think at that point I'd like never had a sip of alcohol. I'd never had a boyfriend. Like <laughs> I had never done anything. It was just school and running, which works for some people. It totally does. But then I think like I'd been in college for a couple months at that point and was like started to do more of the college stuff. And I just went a little too hard and running, unfortunately, took the back burner. But coupled with that was like the amount of training and and mental bashing I had done to myself while I was injured for a year. And it just wasn't fun anymore. And I honestly like I did not fit in with my teammates at all which did not help. I didn't make it easy for myself either. (laughs) But, you know, I didn't really 
give myself opportunity to have a support structure there because I just was horrible to everybody around me. And just like coupling all of those things together. I mean, all sorts of people have a hard time in college, not just athletes. Um, And I think that was just what was happening with me. But part of that also was that I was, I like, I'm built like a cyclist. I'm not built like a runner. And having to day in and day out, like, see people who were 30 pounds lighter than me. (laughs) And unfortunately, that's just like what running is, is you just have to be light. And I was not light. And I couldn't get light. And actually, there are people who would disagree with this. There's this marathon runner, Allie Kiefer, who is like a great body positivity model, and she's fast as hell. But like for me, that was just too much of a block. Like I couldn't get over it mentally. And so all of those things kind of culminated. So by, sorry, long answer to your question. By first semester of sophomore year, I was like, this isn't working. But I stuck it out for another two and a half years, finished my degree, and then immediately moved to Chicago and quit. And then became so much happier. Like my mental health went through the roof. And then I had that whole perspective as a base for what not to do in cycling and started cycling purely for enjoyment. Um, And I think that really has laid an awesome foundation for me. And I think a lot of people don't know this, but Chicago's an incredible place to be a bike rider. It's amazing. Every kind of cyclist. Maybe not mountain bikers. (laughs) But, um, yeah, I mean, I started cycling because I got a commuter in college. Like, I just had so much fun ripping around. Obviously, no helmet. Definitely, like, crashed riding into class more than once. But yeah, and that's what it was in Chicago too. Just like I started working at a bike shop because I was interested. I just liked bikes. And every time I had brought my bike into the shop in undergrad, the people were so nice and I was just into it. Um, And then my coworkers, we just like rode around doing nothing, you know, rode to and from work, rode to and from class. The bike infrastructure there is great. And yeah, people, the community, people ride all winter, group rides, um, cyclocross, as I mentioned, is huge. Northbrook is huge all summer. Road, the road group rides are fun. Uh, yeah, it's really great for any kind of cyclist, not just people who ride and train. For those people who just want to ride bikes, because there's a growing community, especially nowadays when I go outside, it seems like everybody, it seems like the number of people that I've seen being physically active has increased dramatically in the last couple of weeks. Maybe we just have time and we realize the importance and how good it is for our mental and physical well-being to just be active. But talk to us about just bike riding as opposed to bike racing, because we all got into the sport because we loved riding a bike. Totally. Yeah, I mean, I'm thankful that that is something that will stick with me no matter what happens in sport. Um, I love to ride my bike, and that is at the core of everything that I do, every training ride that I go on. Um, And I think the majority of people who ride bikes are not, they're not racing. They're commuting, or they're just out recreationally. I think it is, in some ways, really good that we have all this time now, because people are getting outside and experiencing cycling. I think it will allow people to have a bit more empathy with people who are outside training or just commuting or whatever. Um, I think we experience a lot of animosity as cyclists in the U.S. with like our preoccupation with car culture. Yeah, cycling is riding. It's just like, it's just fun. I mean, I wouldn't do it if it were not. And that is all, you know, I have N plus one bikes and I enjoy riding every single one of them. Um, for different reasons. Like there's literally nothing better than riding 
to the bar or meeting your friends um, on your beater in the summer, in the evening. Like, it's just such a special way to get around, I think. You're not trapped in a box. You're not waiting at stoplights. You're not stuck in the train, although I like the train quite a bit, too, (laughs) when I live in a city with good public transit. Yeah, it's just like... And it just makes so much sense. It's just simple, and it's a good way to connect with people. Like, that's been the best thing about cycling, is just all the people that you get to know and ride. Like, you could ride up to somebody commuting in Chicago and be like, hey, where are you going? And you just ride together, and you don't have to say anything. And then you split off, and you're like, I just had a moment. That was really nice. <laughs> but also, I you know, growing up in Chicago and, and leaving Chicago and coming back now, I realize that there is something inherent about the Midwestern personality that... You can do that. Like you go to the jewels and you're sitting there in the aisle in the jewels and they're like, somebody will just randomly walk up to you and start talking to you about whatever it is you're selecting. And that <laughs> I have a feeling like most people who live on the East Coast, especially people who live in New York City or Boston, who, you know, don't have that sort of open mentality of wanting to talk to everybody around you. It's really kind of off-putting. So, you know, like... That is a beauty of Chicago, and it's a beauty of the Midwest that people just want to be friendly. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think the Midwest is, like, probably the most organically nice people that I've ever met. Just, like, totally normal is the way I would describe them. You get a, you get that where I live in Asheville, too. People are pretty friendly. But, so, like, Southern friendliness is a little different than Midwestern friendliness. It's, like, usually comes with a caveat. But I kind of like the Northeast style, too. Like, I'm not afraid to tell someone to fuck off if they're in my way, and I appreciate that for sure. So, but, yeah, Chicago is special. It is very special. And I live in D.C. for a reason now because I just can't talk to that many people that often. Yeah, that's very true. I'm just like, sometimes you do just, like, you're wearing headphones and someone comes to talk to you and you're like, are you kidding me? Like, it's obvious that I don't want to talk to you. That's why the big over-the-ear headphones, I think, are key. Because you can maybe miss the AirPods. can. But, like, the the Bose headphones that are going over your head that, like, look like a, you know... yeah full stereo set but what do we need to do because you represent this this portion of the sport that's underrepresented and that specifically is female bike racers we know there's a lot of female bike riders i can see them when i commute to work every day or when i did commute to work every day i could see them out there how do we transition the bike rider into the bike experiment, racing experiment, or into the bike racer? That's a great question. And I may give a somewhat non-popular answer by saying that I don't think we should try. (laughs) I think female cyclists are going to come to the sport or they're not. Like, it's a personality type for sure. And I think that there, people are either going to like it or they're not. And like, yeah, okay, maybe we should, we should totally try in the sense that we like, demonstrate things that they may not know about cycling, right? Like how awesome the female community of cyclists is, especially if people, if if it's smaller and it's hard to see that, then it's harder for people to want to get into it. But I think there are more men than women in cycling for a reason. And I think that's because cycling is, has a lot of the similarities with the way men approach the world, which is just more aggressively than females, more risk-taking. It's just like the difference in male brain chemistry versus female brain chemistry. Like, it's just how it is. And that 
that is okay. But I do think that female cyclists have kind of what I was getting at before, an obligation to demonstrate that, that women do have a place here if they do want it. And that comes, I think, with people, when I was in Chicago, my first few times riding a bike, people connected me with like women hosting women only group rides. Um, And then eventually by my time that I was leaving there, I was leading a couple of those rides. And I think um, even just having a couple women on like the scarier group rides made a big difference. And I was like, okay, well they're doing it. So I want to do it too. That I think is what is going to get the people who are predisposed to racing, but don't know it yet into racing. On the other side of things, I think that if you don't want to race your bike, then no one should make you race your bike. Like, if you just want to commute or do whatever you do, bikepacking, like, all that stuff, racing is not more valid than the way, any other way that you would use a bicycle, if that makes sense. Chapter 3, The End of the Rainbow. Yeah, we're going to talk about Worlds and her winning the rainbow jersey. If you haven't seen it yet, there's a link to the final round video on the website. It's front and center. In fact, I won't be upset if you stop this episode right now, right here, go watch the 4 minute and 11 second race, and come right back. Here we present the how and the why of the story. We start with what it's like to be at the top of this community and how that relationship with USA Cycling works. I think we have a really positive relationship with our governing body. Um, And I always have. I mean, and by always, I mean (laughs) the three years that I've been riding bikes. Um, I came to a talent ID camp here in 2017, at the end of 2017, I'd already signed with Supermint, but the season hadn't started yet and had a, you know, had a solid experience with that. And then I took a trip to Belgium with the national team or excuse me, the Netherlands with the national team at the end of 2018 and had a great experience with that. I think they are invested in development, which is the key for women, um, especially women who enter the sport when I did, which is later. Um, and now they're increasing their efforts. I mean, everything's kind of on pause at the moment, um, obviously, but like they're increasing their efforts to get junior women into the sport. But I don't, I think junior women are not the only important women um, or junior men. I think focusing on women my age, because that's just when women athletes are doing well is really important. And I think USA Cycling has put an effort on that. I have a number of peers who have been in the same position as me, and that's really appreciated. I think that a lot of people misunderstand the importance of your age demographic because for juniors, there's a lot of support that comes from parents and family and a small community. I mean, as a swimmer, I, I lived it. You know, the amount of the amount of time and effort that my mom and dad put into my swimming career was incredible. It's that age group from college up to the point in time when you're making supposedly making enough money as a professional in whatever your industry is that's the hard part and that's where the true 
soft spot is in 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 our sports funding. Yeah, if you're living on a graduate school stipend and eating rice for dinner every night, like how are you going to afford a nice road bike? It's just not it's literally not going to happen, male, female, anyone. So, I think it is really important because I think I don't have data on this, but from what I've seen women a lot of women get into the sport when I did. Um and a lot of women, probably more women would get into the sport with I did it when I did if there were more um, opportunities, I think, yeah, I think juniors are very well supported by their parents. Not everyone. I've heard plenty of juniors, too, who say their parents made them pay for everything, in which case, kudos to you, because I did not have a job until, like, I was in grad school, basically. Yeah, I think I think that bracket is a little bit neglected, um, and I think you could see huge returns from that, especially because women's cycling careers, or just women in endurance sports, can't like that age, you can compete for a really long time. Um, so if you can do a 12-year career starting when you're 22, why would you not invest in that person? How did the four of you come together? So we all, we all came together just through, through the track program. I think everyone entered um, a little bit differently. I think in terms of like ease of entering the program, someone like myself had it pretty good because they just invited me and um, had me come here for camps specifically for the pursuit. I know a lot of people on the team have spent a lot of time in their own money traveling to Europe to race um, C1s on their own dime to get the points necessary to get onto the into the national program. Um, whereas with the pursuit, you can fill in whichever athletes you want for, an, uh, for a spot at a race, if that makes sense. So like I didn't independently have to earn any points to join the program. So, um, it was, yeah, it was all different. Chloe, Emma, and I are all pursuit-specific. And um, Jen Valenti is our Omnium rider and rides the Madison as well. Um, and then Megan Jastrab, um, our youngest team member, is, like, she kind of does it all as well. Um, but she raced the Madison at Worlds with Jen. Um, and she's also the Madison, the junior Madison world champion and the junior Omnium world champion and the Junior Road Race World Champion. So she's obviously talented. So yeah, everyone has been a little bit different. I also can't speak to the men. I can only speak to the women. I'm wondering how we get Megan into cyclocross. The first time I met her, I was like, do you do cross? She was like, no. And I was like, well, you'd be really good. We were playing garbage ball and she brake checked me and I unclipped and I lost and I was pissed. What what is garbage ball? It's uh it's you're all on your bikes on a grass field and there's like a laundry hamper or garbage can in the middle and there's a ball and you the goal is obviously to get the ball into the garbage can but when it falls on the ground you have to pick it up without unclipping or getting off your bike. Um and there's two teams so you can like pass the ball and if you put a foot down at any point you're out. Yeah, she was a pretty savvy player. I was pretty offended to get beat by someone so young, but she's very wise. This sounds like a game that uh, Adam Mills and I used to play when I was getting into bike racing, where we would uh, ride up the hill on the Campanile at the University of Kansas on the sidewalk. Yeah. And the goal was to push the other person off the sidewalk. Love it. Seems safe. Yeah, just totally safe. There's grass on both sides of you, right? And it was just a bike handling thing. Like, how much can you lean into the other person? Yeah. And, And truthfully, like, this is, I know this isn't where you were trying to take this, but that I think that kind of thing is a difference between men and, and women in cycling. Like, women wouldn't... And this is a gross overgeneralization, but, like, women don't play games like that. Women don't roughhouse. It's just, like, not... 
how it is. But those like, stuff like that is kind of essential for development in cycling in a, in a sport that's so skills based. And when you add the risk of riding on the road and getting run over by an aberrant driver or like you see a crit and all the videos you see of crits online are just people crashing. It's like there's never anything positive that comes from a crit video that's posted online. So like you have this perception and just general, totally generalizing here, but personality traits. And I just think it's, a you know, a true reason that there are discrepancies in the sport, not saying they don't need to be remediated, but... Well, one of the things that I think we probably were talking about was communication. Yeah. Some Somewhere in all of that was a conversation about communication and the importance of communicating while racing, especially something like the team pursuit. You and I both came from sports that had relays. I don't know if you ran relays or not. Like, as a swimmer, I was a backstroker. So, like... You did the medley. My, in the medley relay... You know, that was my thing. It was a very strange position because I didn't really have to be a relay swimmer because I started I started the race. And so it was kind of like, okay, my entire job is to race my own individual race and get to the end and give it to the next guy, the breaststroker, so that he could go. But for team pursuit, there is so much movement and so much changing. And you guys, nobody passes the baton, literally, and just goes off the back. But, uh, you know, like, how do you develop that communication? Um, Well, communication is important across cycling, I think. And I think this subject actually will will infiltrate a lot of the coming conversation. With Pursuit, we have a number of of keywords that we use with each other, which I will not reveal to you because they're top secret. But it's just ways of telling each other how we feel. And that is, I think, the one of the most important parts of the pursuit from my limited experience in the event, but letting each other know verbally as well as through our body motions, um, how things are going. Uh, I think everyone's pretty finely tuned to the, the pace we're supposed to be riding. We have our coach also walking the pursuit line. So if he's ahead of the line, it means we're slow. And if he's behind the line, it means we're fast. So that's a key piece of information that tells us what we need to do. But we also use a series of words just to make sure that things like if you're coming off, like if you're the person who's blown, like the team has to know that because if you go around to the next turn and there's an exchange and the person exchanging expects there to be three people in line behind them and then there's only two, then they're going to miss that exchange and then they're going to be chasing and their pull is going to be twice as long as it was supposed to be and they won't recover. So in an event that's so short, that is one of the most integral elements of making sure you do it perfectly. <laughs> Perfection's kind of the goal. And then of course, like what I have loved about cycling in general is the team, the team element of it. Because with running it was really individual. And I certainly like that too. Like the pressure is only on you, right? But being able to communicate on the road and execute a team plan, it's just like it is so cool. It's so much fun to have this like battle strategy mapped out and then you execute on it, you communicate, you tell each other how you're feeling, you adapt the plan within the race. And that's something I think women are particularly good at is communication. And so I think if you can embrace that element of the racing as opposed to the terrifying elements of it, you would really love it. Yeah, so communication is very important. Who came up with the idea for the video of the four of you walking through I guess I should have waited for you to take that drink <laughs> before I, 
<laughs> who came up with the idea for that video of you guys walking through the building? So the people who produced the video are the Manual for Speed guys. Um, so Crit Racers, you guys all know the Manual for Speed guys. I don't actually remember the name of their production company, but they do all sorts of stuff. They just they don't cover just like crit racing or you know videos or whatever. It was awesome. They're so funny. I think we need a little more lightheartedness in bike racing. I think people get a bit caught up in how serious it is, but... That was going to be my question is, how many takes did you have to go through because you guys were just uncontrollably laughing? (laughs) We did a lot. Like, not only during the actual shoot, but, like, in the background, we were really messing around. So it probably took us a little longer than it needed to, but because our communication is so good, we were able to shoot it pretty quick. Just a few hours. Did you use the keywords? We did, yeah. Steady. I'll reveal one to you. (laughs) There's a couple of DC Velo, my team. We have some uh, keywords that we use during the course of crits. Um, None of them are appropriate for polite company. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's how they should be, right? Absolutely. So I want to dial back to Berlin. And a few weeks ago, going into the finals, was there any doubt in your mind that you guys were going to win? Not at that point. I think, I know that sounds like presumptuous of me, but by that point, I don't know. I've actually kind of had this thought for a long time. Like, I've never really liked setting goals or voicing my goals because I feel like it is cocky or just verbalizing things that you don't know you have the capability of doing is always struck me as kind of weird. But I think for something like this, you need 100% full belief or it's not going to happen. And so voicing those goals for me the past uh, year has been really important. The, the turning point was, so there's three rounds in a pursuit and the names are not particularly intuitive. So the first of the three rounds is quali- called qualifying. And then um, that was one day. Then the next day, at least in the world's format, the next day, and in the Olympic format as well, is the first round, which is really the second round, but it's called the first round. And then the final is the final. And so we saw the fastest time in the qualifying round. Uh, We saw Great Britain ride a 4.11, which is two seconds faster than anything the team had done this year. And so I was like, shit. (laughs) And then we went out and rode a 4.11 and were faster than them. So we were pretty, pretty amped. And at that point, I was like, okay, we are for sure in this. In the first round, all, we, all you have to do in the first round is beat your opponent. So in qualifying round, everyone rides for time. And then they seed you in the first round based on your time. So first race is fourth. Second race is third. And if you don't make first round after qualifying, like if you don't make the top round of first round, then you are not in the gold medal ride. There's no way to get into it. Uh, No, that's not true. Sorry. If you don't make the top two rounds of the first round, you will not be in the gold medal round. So it is super important to set a a fast time in quals. And we were just treating every round as if it were a, a final. So all out, nothing held back. So in the first round, we were seeded against New Zealand, who had won two World Cups this year, beat them, and rode another 4.11. Um, and so at that point, I was kind of... And then Great Britain, who had ridden the second fastest time in quals, rode a 4.12 to move on to the final with us. So at that point, I was pretty confident. And not only in the times that we'd ridden, but in the way it had felt, because it just felt really good. The finals were you, 
against Great Britain. The gold medal final, yes. Okay, so it's a four-minute long event, which means, obviously, that each of you are pulling as hard as you possibly can for one minute. Right. Yeah. So depending on your distribution of labor and every team is a little bit different, you're going to have riders who pull more than riders who do not. Um, And then obviously you have, I don't, you will usually have one rider that, that pulls off and oftentimes it's the starter, but our teammate, Jen, who does the start for us is so strong that she usually is not the one who pulls out. Um, In the final, it was me. Um, So I did my second turn and pulled out and it's distributed to just maximize your team. So it's not just like one lap pull off, one lap pull off. It's like, if you're good at exchanging, maybe you can exchange more as a team. But every team is a little different in how that labor is distributed. When did you know in that final that you had won? Well, I can't give away too many secrets. But at the halfway point, our coach was walking the line in a way that demonstrated that we were significantly ahead. And you can see that in the video. It's just like what he did. Um, And at that point, I was pretty confident um, that it was going to be good. And then by the time I came off the track, because I was our rider to pull out and was just riding along on the apron watching the finish, like it was pretty sure that it was going to happen. Now, there's a difference between knowing when it was going to happen and realizing that you're the world champ. When did that set in? Yeah, I mean, when the team finished, when the three remaining riders finished and it was like permanent. And then I looked up on the clock and saw the time that's when it sunk in. And then, you know, riding around and um, seeing people in the stands who I knew cheering, like that was (laughs) incredible. I actually had one of my coworkers at the bike shop I worked at who helped me get into cycling in the first place was in Europe at the time and came to watch in Berlin. So like the person who got me into cycling got to see us win the world title. And that was like the most special thing that could ever, that has ever happened to me. Like (laughs) it was unbelievable. Do you think it's really sunk in even to this day? I don't. I truly do not. Where's the jersey, by the way? I have, we don't, we haven't had kits like specifically made for us yet, but I have one, just like a training jersey hanging here. The one that I have is at my actual house. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, like the, everybody dreams of the rainbow stripes. Maybe not everyone, but I certainly did. I've always threatened that even if I win, you know, a national championship that I will sleep in that jersey. (laughs) Emma slept in it. (laughs) She did. Well, that makes my day. Yeah, yeah, no, we were so excited. Looking back on it now, as the world champ, having risen to such prominence in this sport so quickly, do you have any advice for like the 15 year old version of Lily Williams? Yeah, definitely. I I think it took a total burnout in sports to get to this point. Like that's not how it is for everyone. For 15 year old me, I would have been like, you know, you can calm down a little bit. Like you don't need to be doing every single run as hard as you can in winning every single thing. But at the same time, like it's definitely like there's a lifestyle that you have to live to to train and and be this way and I think people should be prepared for that because it is it's really taxing. I love it. Like I love the structure and I love the training. It sounds cliché but like I wouldn't do it if I didn't enjoy it. Like I think it, it, like I said not everyone not everyone is the same. Some people just see it as a job and they do it and they're extremely successful that way. But for me if I'm not 
enjoying like a good chunk of it, then it's not gonna it's not gonna happen. That's important to remember if you're trying to have like a really long career, which I am because I want to do this <laughs> as long as I can. Well, great. Lily, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm glad we talked about all sorts of stuff. Thanks for joining us on this episode of No Trading Wheels. We are a proud member of the Wynigle Podium Network of Shows, the world's only collection of top-tier independent cycling content. For more information and links to the other incredible shows on the network, go to WideAnglePodium.com. This show was written, produced, and edited by me, Rob Kelly. For more content, follow us on Twitter at NTWheelsPod or on Instagram at NoTrainingWheelsPod. And your home for the best in American road racing is NoTrainingWheelsPod.com. Until next time, see you out on MacArthur Boulevard. mine too just kind of